0: Talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we're discussing World Antimicrobial Resistance Awareness Week and the first gene therapy for hemophilia B. Enjoy the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevic. Thanks for coming today. So let's begin with a story, uh, a new FDA approval specifically for a new gene therapy, and it's the very first gene therapy approved for hemophilia B. So last week, in a very pivotal approval, the FDA uh, approved a new gene therapy called Hemgenix for the treatment of adults with the genetic blood disorder hemophilia B, uh, which is also known as congenital factor uh, 9 deficiency and um, it has a list price of brace yourselves 3.5 million dollars and so with that it's become the most expensive drug in the world and we'll talk a bit more about why you know gene therapies are so expensive and it's, it's not really surprising anymore actually because we've had several gene therapies being approved this year and they've all been in the million dollar um, range and and the biggest factor for behind that is the fact that these gene therapies are single dose therapies most often so they do have curative potential essentially um, and so prior to Hemgenix, Bluebird Bios recently approved gene therapy SkySona for the rare neurological disorder cerebral adrenalucodystrophy or CALD held the record for the highest costing drug in the world at $3 million. And then before that, it was Novartis's one-dose uh, gene therapy Zolgensma, which is priced at about $2 million. So again, these very high price tags um, are not very surprising anymore. And again, because they are single-dose gene therapies with curative um, intent and potential. So hemegenics is approved for patients who currently use factor 9 prophylaxis therapy or who have serious hemorrhage or spontaneous bleeding episodes from their disease. So Hemgenix is an adeno-associated virus vector-based gene therapy that delivers a functional copy of the factor 9 gene, which is um, which encodes for the factor 9 protein involved in blood clotting, and so the gene is mutated in hemophilia B, and so you don't have um, the body doesn't make enough amounts, or not at all, um, of this factor 9 protein, and so that leads to um, abnormal clotting and the condition uh, hemophilia B. So the prevalence of hemophilia B in the population is around 1 in 40,000, and 15% of patients with hemophilia B, uh, with hemophilia, sorry, have the B type. And um, it primarily affects men. Um, However, women can be carriers of the disease, of course, and uh, most women carriers don't have symptoms while 10 to 25% have mild symptoms and in rare cases women may have moderate or severe symptoms as well. So the hemogenics approval was granted to to, CSL Behring, which is a rare disease biotech company based in Pennsylvania. And the company developed hemogenics jointly with gene therapy biotech Unicure. So CSL Behring actually secured global commercialization rights from Unicure for about in a deal worth about $450 million back in 2020. And as part of the deal, Unicure can also receive up to $1.5 billion in milestone payments and royalties as per um, the drug's success. And so Unicure will manufacture Hemgenix at its Lexington, Lexington, Massachusetts site. Now, conventional treatment for hemophilia B involves prophylactic infusions of factor IX replacement therapy. But now that can be replaced with a single injection of Hemgenix, and this will allow patients to produce the protein continuously in their body on their own, um, and it's, the majority of it is produced in the liver. So the FDA approval for hemogenics was based on results of two studies with adult men, um, including one study that was called the HOPE-B trial, and it involved 54 individuals, um, patients, and that's the greatest number of patients in any single gene therapy trial, actually. Uh, So in the study, patients who received the hemogenics uh, infusion experienced a 54% drop in mean annual bleeding rate, or ABR, compared to baseline uh, also, increases in factor nine activity levels, as well as a decreased need for routine factor nine replacement prophylaxis in a six-month lead-in period. Now, significantly, 94% of patients um, didn't need to have continuous prophylaxis therapy anymore after being treated with hemogenics. So... Um, Again, while the price tag of hemogenics is quite steep, uh, CSL Behring, um, in an interview with another another company, uh, said that the cost of treating patients with moderate to severe hemophilia to healthcare systems is more than $20 million over their lifetimes. And so the company also said that the price does not reflect anticipated discounts that it will be offering for the therapy, including value-based agreements with commercial payers. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this new approval. Again, very pivotal. It's the very first gene therapy for hemophilia B, and it could potentially be curative.
2: Yeah, so actually, this brings back memories to, like, university years where, like, I don't know if you guys studied this, but in second year, we had a genetics course, and we were studying about, you know, um, like, recessive and all these types of diseases and i feel like a textbook example was hemophilia and it they always gave an, was. Yeah. yeah, hemophilia and how it's like an um found on the x chromosome so it's x-linked recessive yes. and then yeah. they gave an example of a royal family that had hemophilia mm-hmm. i think it was queen victoria and like yeah. they were like this family tree and like who were the carriers and all this so it's actually quite amazing to see yeah. that there is now a gene therapy approved for like this rare disease, right, mm-hmm. and that we were what we were learning in the textbook, you know, over a decade ago, mm-hmm. now has like a cure that's approved for it, that is potentially curative, right? So, mm-hmm. like we've really come a long way. I feel like you know science is really advancing. Um, but anyways, that was a bit off topic. Um, no, regarding... it's completely
1: on topic. Actually. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I do think it was hemophilia B because it was like the more rare, the more rare, and that right, and the X-linked one.
2: Yeah. So I think it was hemophilia B was that textbook example. Um, but and yeah, you're right. I, a
1: lot of royal bloodlines, um, they did. Like, I think, yeah, Queen Victoria was a an example. Carrier. Carrier. Exactly. They did have it in their family. So. Yeah.
2: And because it's X linked, it's found on the X chromosome. The symptoms appear more often in men um, because we know that women have like two copies of the X chromosome, whereas men only mm-hmm. have one. So if um, men have hemophilia B, that's why they mostly show symptoms,
1: exactly. Um,
2: but yeah, I can't. I can't believe there's now a, a gene therapy approved to treat this disease. It just shows that hopefully in the future, many of these like genetic um, disorders will be curable with gene therapy. And you know, they're developing gene therapy. Like every year, there's some new technique um, for gene editing that that could um, show promise to be used in therapeutics.
1: Yeah, and it's just getting better and better. As um, I know, there are a lot of obstacles in terms of getting gene therapies um, into into humans, right? Um, and there are still a couple of issues here and there, of course. But I think the kinks are definitely being worked out, and we've come a long way since the early uh, early days, the early proof of concept days, for sure. So yeah.
3: prior to this, prior to this gene therapy. Um, what were some of the treatments um, for hemophilia, if there were any?
1: Yeah, so basically people would get infusions of the missing or deficient protein that they, they were missing. So in this case, it's uh, a deficiency in factor nine. So this is a protein involved in blood clotting. And so... These patients just don't make enough or they don't make any. And so they would get regular infusions. So you can just imagine what their quality of life would have been like, right? Would Or would be like if they're still on it. So it's, they would have to go in for regular infusions. And so this is definitely game changing, right? Like for, a, you know, you're going from regular infusions of a of treatment to potentially a single dose treatment. So that's... Uh, definitely huge uh for patients here
2: yeah i i do agree that although the price tag of this drug is like it's now the world's most expensive drug Mm -hmm. right even though it's it's super high they do have a point that in the long run like in the long run it, it will potentially pay off yeah
1: definitely i like i didn't know like um like, yeah, like Sydney, you asked, like, what is the treatment and the the treatment cost of like these regular infusions over a person's lifetime could be like more than $20 million. Um, not just the infusions, but like all of the other, uh, supportive care and everything, like the cost to the healthcare system would be like more than $20 million. And so, uh, that was, that came as a surprise to me. So in comparison, like seems like this $3.5 million is uh, definitely a better deal. Um, Uh, both obviously quality of life, curative potential and cost-wise as well. All right, let's move on to our next story. And this is uh, pertaining to um, World Antimicrobial Resistance Week. And so last week it was, um, last week marked um, WAAW, again, which is World Antimicrobial Resistance Awareness Week. And the theme of This year's event was Preventing AMR Together. And so WAAW is a global campaign that's celebrated every year to help raise awareness and understanding of antimicrobial resistance, or AMR. And so this year's theme, Preventing Antimicrobial Resistance Together, highlighted the need for collective action in the fight against AMR. And the slogan is essentially a call for really collaborative efforts to address AMR using a One Health approach. And, of course, One Health is a global organization present in many countries. Um, they interconnect researchers, policymakers, and so they do a, a lot of, um, uh, of work in terms of um, just connecting the right people and um, trying to make strides in different areas. And so there is an AMR One Health um, consortium as well. So, um, WAAW Week is led by the Food and Agriculture Organ- Organization of the United Nations, the World Organization for Animal Health, and- as well as the World Health Organization. So, the WHO actually, I think, spearheads this initiative. And, um, again, the goal is to encourage best practices among the public, One Health stakeholders, and policymakers to address the issue of AMR. Now, in 2021 last year, so the WHO identified AMR as one of the top 10 global public health threats facing humanity. So that is huge. And AMR is often called the silent pandemic, uh, as it has the potential to affect both human and animal well-being, the environment, food safety, as well as economic growth and development. Now, according to the WHO, the silent pandemic of AMR leads to at least 1.3 million human deaths every year. And um, I don't know what the numbers are for animal deaths, but I would imagine it would be closer, if not even greater than, I think actually it would be a lot greater than uh, the number of human deaths every year. So... Um, there are several several strains of bacteria that have developed resistance to different types of antibiotics. And the top ones include MRSA, um, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, as well as C. difficile. Um, and uh, the bacteria that causes multidrug-resistant tuberculosis as well. And the number of resistant strains is growing. And um, so to learn more about AMR and WAAW... Uh, I actually got to speak with some experts in the field of AMR, uh, namely Jessica Blavignac, who's the Director of Scientific and Medical Affairs at Biomedia Canada, which is a global diagnostic uh, solutions company. And I also spoke to Janelle Jimenez from One Health, where she manages the AMR One Health Consortium, which involves individuals doing AMR research in Alberta, Canada. So it was really great to speak with them and interview them to learn more about AMR, you know, AMR both locally and globally, and just to see what the state of affairs is and what we need to do collectively in order to combat AMR. Um, So in speaking with these experts, um, I actually got to learn that in Canada alone, 26% of infections are resistant to antibiotics that have been traditionally used to treat them. And that's like, that was very surprising and shocking to me. I didn't anticipate that that would be such a high percentage. And the health and economic implications of this are even more staggering. So uh, Jessica Blavignac, when I spoke to her, said that if trends continue by 2050, this could cause up to 15 deaths per day. And then economically, it could be a loss of $1.4 billion to the healthcare system and also translate to a $396 billion loss in GDP. And so she said that this is alarming because if this is the state of affairs in a high income country like Canada, then if you transpose that to a country that has less resources, the impact you can imagine will be far more detrimental. And then, uh, yeah, I just want to get into also some of the causes of antimicrobial resistance as well. And I learned a lot from um, both Jessica and Janelle. And, of course, the, you know, the uh, topmost issue is the overuse of antibiotics in recent years. So that's been one of the primary contributors to AMR. But in addition to that, there are a number of other uh, factors as well. And so the list includes things like... Of course, antibiotic use in animals as well, in animal agriculture, Uh, a lack of uh, or insufficient infection control measures such as basic things like hand washing and hand hygiene. And although, of course, COVID definitely um, helps to bring more awareness to the importance of good hand hygiene. Um, Another factor is transport of animals, food, and other products globally because we're so globally interconnected. And so these items can carry pathogens. And if you have resistant um, pathogens, then those can be transferred from place to place very easily because of our global interconnectivity. Also, the absence of uniform infectious disease surveillance programs across different regions. So... This is a problem because there isn't a uniform program in every region, in every country, uh, much less. So um, our system of infectious disease uh, survey surveillance in Canada might be different from, let's say, a country in Asia or in West Africa. And so that um, disconnect in terms of not having that uniformity in uh, surveillance can also translate, all, obviously, into coordinated um action in response to infectious disease outbreaks as well. So because each country, each region has different programs or lack thereof, that also makes it hard to track outbreaks when they do happen and then to have um, a coordinated global response to that. So the overuse, again, of uh, antimicrobials, antibiotics, of course, promotes resistance and can lead to the evolution of superbugs. And so the worry is that if enough of these superbugs arise or if they develop multi-drug resistance, so d- resistance to multiple different antibi- uh, antibiotics, the current antibiotics that we have may not be effective against them. And although um, antibiotic research is a huge field and there's like so many like... Um, uh, companies and so many researchers that work developing new antibiotics um, continuously. But I mean, until we get there, like it's a huge problem that the ones we currently have may not be effective against some of the common things that um, we are faced with every day. And so again, the experts I spoke to really stress the point that clinicians, patients, and policymakers must therefore be vigilant and strategic in the use of antibiotics and ensure that they're only used for infections caused by bacteria and not viruses, for example. So um, I think it was uh, Janelle, she actually was saying that not all bugs have to be drugged, right? So not all bugs need drugs. So people feel it's 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 kind of like a perception that, you know, if you're sick, they need to be given something to treat it. But that's not always the case because in cases of viral infections, for example, more often than not, your body will clear it, of course, on its own. Or you might need an antiviral, um, not an antibiotic. So just these kinds of things are really important. I think, um, awareness campaigns around this, um, better information to, uh, for patients, um, again, policymakers, clinicians, everybody has to be on board. And I think that, uh, really that education needs to, uh, really get out there and in that information so that, uh, you have the appropriate use of antibiotics. The other thing that, um, Janelle was saying is that, um, uh, the use of appropriate diagnostic tools to quickly screen for the type of infection a patient may have is also really important because if if you go to your, your doctor and they, you know, see you have some type of an infection and um, they usually, you know, lab results may take a couple of days or a week or whatnot to come in. So in that time... Uh, the patient may want something, or the doctor may want to give the patient something without knowing what the cause of the infection is. So, if it's a bacterial, fungal, viral, par- parasitic infection, you really don't know at that point. So, it's important to have diagnostic tests that are rapid and that are, you know, readily available and that you can know so that you can know your course of treatment um, more quickly. So, that's also important. Um, going to some of the other factors, the use of antibiotics in animal agriculture. So, this is a topic of um, a pretty hot topic. I think, uh, um, the, the experts were saying, uh, Janelle was saying that, you know, like we're so quick to say, oh, well, we're overusing antibiotics, um, with animals in animals, but, uh, you know, the co- conversation has to be more nuanced because there are ethical issues with not treating sick animals, right? You can't just leave animals sick and not give them anything, um, to to help them. So that's an, a huge ethical concern. And so again, we need to, that requires a lot more conversation around how animal agriculture is conducted. So that's a whole different uh, conversation, but very related. And of course, um, you know, the environment and agriculture are so interconnected. So any antibiotics that are used in animal agriculture, you know, that will end up in the environment, in wastewater, of course, wastewater coming from hospitals as well, biopharma production, and all of that. So, really, it's uh, our environments are so interconnected with what we do in our daily lives, of course. So, there's no way around that, but to just be more vigilant and come up with uh, strategies to um, make sure that antibiotics and um, don't get into our environments and our uh, systems um and yeah so again like what are the approaches and solutions to tackle amr i think that's the biggest question so again as we talked about education and delivering clear clear information are are a key component of dealing with amr and the approach must be multifaceted and include multiple players and so that ties into the the whole theme of preventing amr together So it has to involve everybody getting on board, um, according to Janelle, and, you know, really getting the information out there. And the other challenge has been that um – that Janelle says that she's seen in her work at one health, um, at the AMR one health consortium is that people from different disciplines may be coming together. So experts working on antibiotic research or people working in animal agriculture, but they'll have a different understanding of AMR and how it impacts their specific industry. And then she said that like, sometimes there's often a disconnect. So for somebody, AMR may mean something or a solution that they find may not be, um, conducive to another field. So there's kind of a disconnect. So she said there needs to be more open-mindedness and more conversation and discussion and to really truly have a multidisciplinary approach in combating AMR and to bring people together from different fields and uh, again, work together um, to combat uh, this problem of AMR. And so the take-home message really is that the experts were saying that, you know, a lot of people think that AMR, you know, won't affect me, but the truth of the matter and uh, and the reality is that it um, either already has, or it definitely will affect everybody in the future in some way. And so, um, yeah, just need to work together to um, help fight against uh, AMR. And to, that starts with awareness, education, and information. And uh, it's a global issue. And so... Um, countries have to work together at the government level as well of course to address amr so i wanted to get your thoughts on um i guess just amr as a global issue like did you know it was such a pressing global issue you know top 10 global health threat declared by the who last year and what are your thoughts Yeah, I did not
3: know. I mean, that's a staggering figure um, of how many people it unfortunately, you know, Mm -hmm. affects. And um, the whole time I was just thinking, like, I I did know about, you know, AMR, um, not to the extent that, you know, you you talked about, but in terms of just uh, in, in humans, do... Why? Like wh- why? Why isn't this? Like I did know about this. Why do doctors still prescribe antibiotics when they're not sure? Because you know, as like I, as a patient, it's it's you want to advocate for yourself, but you know, you can't always count on the patient to know these things, and you want to believe your doctor. Um, but I like our antibiotic companies, like you know is it something indif- like i know i'm getting all like conspiracy <laughs> theory here but i'm just so curious like why why it's still happening um cuz cuz i think a lot of people are aware of it
1: that's a great question and you know what like i don't know like if there's there must be data on this i hope in terms of like how many antibiotics are prescribed by doctors and uh clinicians but i i would hope that it's it, it isn't um the case anymore where they're just prescribing offhand, like, okay, it looks like you have an infection, and I'll give you an antibiotics. I really hope that's not happening to the extent that it was happening in the past because of awareness campaigns like this. Um, but yeah, it is very problematic, and um, it's why it's a big reason why we've gotten here. I think it's just out of, I don't want to say carelessness, and just like trying to give the patient something to appease them right but again I don't um it'd be interesting to see the data to see antibiotic prescribing and use and if that's fallen over the years and that would be a good sign actually that things are improving and going in the right direction but yeah it's it's so true it's like like why like I remember going to the doctor back in the day when I was a kid and it's like okay you have an infection and then I'd be like what? Well, I, I don't know here just take this antibiotic and people like family members too they've been like just give me something and it's like yeah but and and as as yeah. you were
3: talking about that I also thought like this isn't just a singular problem that I feel like you know just appeasing a patient or or trying to move on to the next person mm-hmm. is like that's a, just a problem with uh, the broader medical you yeah. know system as a whole just to like all right next next next, next. Yeah. it's yeah and it seemed like you know the easy solution um but Yeah, it's kind of upsetting that that that's what it was and probably still is in in many cases. Um, Mm -hmm. But this, I mean, I also didn't know about, you know, how horribly it affects animals as well. Um, And treating them is obviously such a different like Mm -hmm. ethical dilemma than treating humans but they should absolutely still be treated too i just Mm -hmm. feel like they there's not as much care um about Mm -hmm. animals um you know well-being because they can't tell Mm -hmm. you or go to the doctor themselves um and i don't know you know how often they're testing animals for for certain things so it seems like a whole other separate but similar issue to tackle like you were saying it's it's got to be multifaceted yeah
1: Absolutely. And with animal agriculture, I'm wondering if it's the same thing. It's like, are are they just throwing antibiotics at animals when let's say they might have a parasitic infection or maybe they have a viral infection and they're like, all right, we'll just give them antibiotics for that too. So are they testing them regularly? And we don't know. So like, that's, it's the same problem.
3: Yeah. And and now it, like and I'm thinking of like when I've heard commercials or something or or read on a package that says like antibiotic free chicken mm. or or free of antibiotics like they that is a selling point I think yeah. for a lot of oh, such uh, a great point yeah meat products um and I never really understood why you would give animals antibiotics in the first place until you explained this and that makes total sense so um now if a human this might be something you you don't know but you know if a human eats uh you know a a piece of chicken that did you know was provided mm-hmm. antibiotics like can that affect them do we know is it like too far removed
1: I don't know but I would think antibiotics are cleared in this you know by the system and mm-hmm. the more the, the, the the major concern is that it ends up in, like, the environment, right? right? So they end right. up in wastewater and seeping in, in, in soils. And so I think most antibiotics are flushed out. There may be some amounts, trace amounts, that may remain in the animal, but I think the majority – correct me if I'm wrong, um, Vera, or anyone like I, – I don't think it's as um, – major of a concern as people make it out to be and then they're using that on labels like oh Mm. antibiotic free and that's not necessarily a good thing because what if you're eating a sick animal right (laughs) so if the animal had an infection and wasn't treated with an antibiotic they may have had a very sick life and so that quality of meat may not be good right so if you start thinking of if you really start thinking you're like wait a second
3: (laughs) i'm thinking from like the food industry angle and why i think they they include you know they would include antibiotic free Mm -hmm. is because there's such a movement towards like Untouched, you know, animals, grass-fed, like organic, organic, exactly, doing only what they need to do to the animals, and and if they're raised on a farm where no animals get sick, then they don't even need antibiotics. So I think that's the draw, which is great. But it's like that's not is that reality? Is that exactly exactly? It's like are
1: they being grown like free range and on like these beautiful pastures, or are they in those cramped quarters and? You know, we've seen all those documentaries about how chickens are grown. They don't see the light of day and they're like sick and like they need those antibiotics. So unless they're going hand in hand that you're giving them a better quality of life, then yeah, you don't need antibiotics, but we don't know that. (laughs) So
2: yeah, I was also going to add that I think like regarding doctors and veterinarians, right? I think there's some... conditions where it's very obvious to them it's likely a bacterial infection like they've seen indi- they've yes, seen things true. hundreds of times yeah, and that like, is true yeah. i do think when they give an antibiotic without doing tests i do think that they're almost 100 percent sure it's bacterial because they see things and there are indications it could be a very yeah. like it just could be like a looks like a pus or like some bacteria is mm-hmm. there sometimes it's kind of like this is bacteria right and they know yep. it um But in my experience, I do feel like doctors are very hesitant to give antibiotics these days for this reason. Yes. And like, for example, even if you have a sore throat, they won't give you an antibiotic until they Mm -hmm. test you for strep throat, for example. So in my experience, I do feel like today, um, the doctors and vets, they're very, very cautious about like the overuse or misuse of antibiotics. I do Mm -hmm. think... When they do prescribe it it's either they've done the testing or they're like fairly certain it's caused by bacteria so mm-hmm. i do think like today in the medical community there's so much more like caution and like awareness about this um than there used to be probably oh, yes. like 20 years ago definitely so and it's and 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 when they do give antibiotics they're also very careful to tell patients. Or Finish your course. Yeah, that's exactly. the other thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: In the yeah. past, yeah, when we were kids, it was probably a lot, e- like a we lot of We just easier. getting
1: antibiotics for everything, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even now, if, yeah, I mean, like, for sure, like do- doctors, clinicians, they can tell, like, for the most part, if it's a bacterial infection. But let's say if it's not clear that it's not bacterial, yeah. it might be viral. But just to make the patients potentially maybe feel better they, they were being prescribed and so that's where the issue comes in. came yeah, up what, yeah, which in i think it's yeah. in the
2: minority of
1: doctors now now days. for yeah, sure yeah, now yeah. Yeah. now yeah. yeah but yeah not <laughs> 10 20 years ago that was yeah that's kind of how we got here unfortunately but Yeah. So very great discussion around uh, AMR. And uh, yeah, that brings us to the end of this episode of the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe.
0: Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X-Talks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com.